Hello, and welcome to Radio Free Acton, the podcast of the Acton Institute dedicated to the study of religion and liberty. I'm Caroline Roberts. In the first segment of this episode, I'll be speaking with A.J. Jacobs, journalist, lecturer, and New York Times bestselling author about his newest book, Thanks a Thousand, detailing his trip around the world as he found and thanked every person who worked to make his morning coffee. After that, senior editor at the Acton Institute, Reverend Ben Johnson, speaks with Marianne Kalam, an Estonian politician. Marianne witnessed firsthand life in Soviet-occupied Estonia and speaks with Father Ben about her family's journey from despotism to freedom, her eventual return to Estonia, and her work to champion freedom even after the fall of the Iron Curtain. If you would like to check out any of the resources, books, articles, or more mentioned in this episode, you'll find them all linked in our show notes. Posted every Wednesday at blog.acton.org. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with A.J. Jacobs, who is a New York Times bestselling author, journalist, and lecturer, and he also calls himself a human guinea pig. A.J., welcome to Radio Free Acton. Well, thank you. Of course. Thank you for having me. I have to first ask, why do you call yourself a human guinea pig? Well, I like to do experiments on myself. That's sort of the way I write. So I've done uh, several books where I try something out. I I tried for one book to be the healthiest person alive. And I did, you know, tested every diet and exercise regimen known to humans. Uh, I, I did one called The Year of Living Biblically, where I experimented. I tried to follow all the rules of the Bible as literally as possible, uh, from the Ten Commandments right on down to not shaving the corners of your beard. I will do, I'll try something out for a year, and then I will write a book about it. So <clears throat> I wrote a book a couple of years ago where I tried to build a family tree of the entire human race to show that we're all related and maybe we should stop being so tribal. Uh, so I'll, I'll live the topic and then write about it. What, what makes you, what drives your curiosity? Well, I love the idea of self-improvement and I just think I need a lot of self-improvement. And uh, these projects are ways to learn how to make myself better. And I, and the strategy is I just take it to the extreme. So I try everything out, often drive my wife crazy in the process. But in the end, you know, I did shave my beard, but, uh, but there are things that I adopt from each of the projects that hopefully improve my life. So I actually want to talk about your newest book, which is called Thanks a Thousand. And it, it follows your journey all over the world to find and thank each person who had a hand in making your cup of coffee. You say that to make a cup of coffee, it takes more than a village, but it really takes the world. I have so many questions about this. But first, <laughs> why did you take up this project? Well, this project came about because I had read so much about the importance of gratitude and how uh, it's so crucial to, it, it makes you healthier, it makes you um, happier, it makes you more generous. Uh, so I, I needed a practice in my life, I thought. So I started to say this sort of prayer of Thanksgiving before meals, but I am not very religious. So it was sort of a secular prayer where I would thank people who helped make my meal. Uh, so I would say thank you to the farmer who grew the tomatoes and thank you to the uh, the cashier at the grocery where I bought my tomatoes. 
And my son, who was 10 at the time, said, you know, Dad, that, that's kind of lame because those people can't hear you. They're not in our apartment. If you really cared, you would go and thank them in person. And I thought, now that is an interesting idea. That could be an interesting book or project. Uh, so that set me off the next several months. I traveled around the world thanking a thousand people who had even the smallest role. And I took it very uh, broadly, sort of six degrees of gratitude. So not just the, the barista or the farmer, but you've also got the people who drove the truck with the coffee beans and the people who built the road because the truck couldn't drive without the road and the people who uh, painted the yellow lines on the road. So uh, the point is we're all interconnected. How did you find every person who's involved in making a cup of coffee? Because I'm willing to bet that there are people involved in making my cup of coffee that I would never guess at. Oh, yeah. I mean, it depends how broadly you define it. But yeah, you, you know, there are hundreds, thousands. I could have spent a lifetime thanking people because really you think about it, uh, you know, I remember I called the woman who does pest control for the warehouse where the coffee is stored. And I said, thank you for keeping the insects out of my coffee. Uh, and she, she actually was a little taken aback. She's like, you know, that's a little strange, but thank you. I don't get that much positive feedback in my line of work. It was lovely that it, it made her day and in turn, it made my day. But you're absolutely right. I could have spent the next 50 years of my life thanking people. And so it was almost arbitrary which uh, paths I went down. But I just, I wanted to thank a lot of people and hear their stories. So that's the book. The book is sort of a combination of the stories of the people who who, who made, a, made parts of my coffee and, and also how to have this gratitude practice, how to change your point of view. Well, I'm sure that woman had never had anyone call her before to thank her for her role <laughs> in, you know, keeping the bugs out of our coffee. Oh, no. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, it was interesting because I was visiting people or cold calling them and and some of them were skeptical. Some were like, you know, is this a pyramid scheme? What are you, what are you trying to sell me? But interestingly, the vast majority were very um, accepting, very grateful to be thanked. And just like you said, no one calls to thank the person who does pest control for the warehouse. But they should. They should. It's good for both parties. I think that really just goes to show, though, how important every single job is, even the ones that seem menial or small. And on top of that, how important it is to feel like you have a purpose in your job or at least are making some sort of impact. You know, just about every job is important and has an impact. Yeah, and I love this story um, that I looked into, and it, it sounds apocryphal, but it's actually not. Uh, when John F. Kennedy was president, he took a tour of NASA, and he talked to the scientists and the engineers, and then he, uh, he ran into a janitor in the hallway, and he asked the janitor, what do you do here? And the janitor said, Mr. President, I am helping to put a man on the moon. And I just love that because, A, it's true, but he has an important role to play. If, it, if, they, if the NASA wasn't clean, then, uh, you know, people would get sick or injured. And, B, being able to see your life as part of something bigger, uh, it's not just true, but it is 
it adds so much meaning to uh, and purpose, as you say. And I think uh, I think we need that. It's good for our mental health. Mm-hmm. I couldn't agree more. And, uh, and here at Acton, actually, I can't help but mention that we've recently released a series of short videos called The Good Society Films, where we explore the economic, moral, social, and theological foundations of a flourishing society. And and in one of these videos, we take up a similar project, talking with people who are involved in the farming of coffee beans, the processing, the transportation, and even the production of coffee bean roasters. As we move on, I want to play a little bit of a devil's advocate here, because the argument can be made that this is really just basic economics. So what? <laughs> you know, we can pull the average Joe off the street, and I'm sure that they can probably guess that there's more than about five to ten people who might be involved in bringing you your cup of coffee in the morning. But I, I do get the sense that you somewhat are awed by what you found, or at least really value thanking each person who's involved in any way in producing coffee. Why do you think it's important to thank them? Well, I think it's important for both parties. I mean, I... For me, it was eye-opening to realize how much goes into every little thing in our lives, and it increases my sense of wonder and awe, which are positive emotions. So, for instance, when I talked to the guy who designed the plastic lid for my coffee cup, and just hearing him, uh, how much passion he had and, and what the blood, sweat, and tears that it went into this little piece of plastic like he thought about the shape of the opening for the coffee so that it came out the liquid came out at just the right angle and and uh, making sure that there was a hole for the aroma and it made me look around my life and see all these little masterpieces everywhere that I take for granted and that helps fight our negative bias which is that humans are very good at noticing the negative we are good at you know if you hear a hundred compliments and a single insult. We are good at remembering the insult. And that might have been helpful when we needed to spot lions on the savanna, but it's not so helpful for living a happy life. So I think it's good for the person who's doing the thanking. And then I do think there there have been recent studies that show uh, being thanked is more meaningful than we uh, than we estimate. We we uh, overestimate how awkward it's going to be to thank a stranger, and we underestimate how meaningful it will be. And um, and I have been uh, corresponding with a lot of readers during this, and hearing them thank me for the books that I write and the impact. Hearing just the details of the impact, you know what parts. Uh, move them, what parts inspire them to do something in their life, that is the most meaningful part of my day. It, you know, I it's like, uh, it just makes it worthwhile for me to do my job because uh, as a writer, sometimes you just are in a room sending it out into the ether and you don't know how it affects people. This is probably going to be my last question. We're running a little bit short on time. But I'm lastly wondering, after this project was done, did you notice a slight change of heart or maybe different mindset of gratitude after you finished? I do. I mean, I think it had a huge uh, impact. And and it's all, you know, I, I say that you don't have to go around the world thanking a thousand people, that there are, are ways to do this that are more practical. And, and one of them is just really making it a ritual to notice all of the good things, the hundreds of good things that happen every day. Uh, 
And this, I included this in my book, and it really seemed to strike a chord, so I thought I would mention it. Before, when I'm going to sleep, I find instead of counting sheep, count the things that you are grateful for. And, and to give it some structure, do it alphabetically. So when I'm going to sleep, I'll go, you know, start with A. I'm thankful for the apples that uh, you know, were in the apple pancake that my kids made over the weekend, or as specific as possible, you know, B, I'm thankful for the, the TV show Barry on HBO, and that they cast Henry Winkler, as, uh, and he's just wonderful in it. And they don't, so they don't have to be about the meaning of life. They can be little things. And I have found it so effective that I usually am asleep by F or G. I've never made it to Z. So that's just one example of how you can incorporate gratitude into your life to make yourself, um, to make, I, I compare it to sort of turn down the volume on your inner Larry David and turn up your volume on your inner Mr. Rogers. Well, AJ, thank you so much for your time today. It is it is a bit satisfying to think, you know, when I get up in the morning, there were a lot of people who were involved in bringing it to me that morning. Well, thank you. What makes a good society? Is it a vibrant moral culture, a just political order, or could it be all of this and more? The Good Society is a short free film series that focuses on the intersection between the human person and economics and explores themes of work, creativity, entrepreneurship, and exchange. Each person is unique and unrepeatable and created in the image of God. This series proposes a human-centered vision of economics and commerce and shows how global collaboration and competition unlock human ingenuity and play a role in building a free and virtuous society. Watch any of the films at actin.org slash TGS. How would you feel if you took on the most repressive regime in human history and won? Marianne Kalam knows exactly what that's about. Her story is featured in the most recent issue of Religion and Liberty. We're going to talk a little bit about her extraordinary life of activism, from opposing the Soviet domination of her parents' native Estonia when she was just a little girl, to going on to serve as its foreign spokesperson, as well as a member of parliament. Marianne Kalam, how did you begin on this pathway? Well, I got involved from my early childhood already because I was born in a refugee camp in Germany after my parents had escaped on one of the last ships to leave Tallinn Harbor. And when I was four years old, we were able to find a sponsor in the United States and uh, get on an American troop ship that took a whole lot of refugees to the United States. And this was thanks to President Truman pushing through the Displaced Persons Act, which allowed more refugees to come from uh, war-torn Europe. And so I was raised in an Estonian home, having been raised by my parents to love Estonia, to know that I have a grandmother who's there that I will probably never see because she's behind the Iron Curtain. It was all hard to comprehend how a government could do that, just cut people off from their friends, their family, and from the rest of the world. And so my mother uh, had left her mother on the dock and assumed that she had tried to come on the next ship. The next ship was bombed. A ship full of wounded and refugees was bombed by the Soviets, went to the bottom with almost all lives lost. My mother assumed her mother found her end there. And then after Stalin died, finally, 
a letter comes one day to our home in Ohio, and uh, it had come a circuitous route with all sorts of postage stamps on it and by our relatives in Canada and <laughs> found its way to us, and it was a letter from her mother. So things had eased a bit. Once he died, the monster died, uh, at least a little bit of communication opened up. And um, it was a day of jubilation in our house. It was just amazing. She was alive, and then my mother was able to write to her and say that you have a granddaughter, which she didn't know. And then it turned out my grandmother even had a dream about the time I was born about some sort of a red rose and my mother. So an iron curtain may descend, but it can't cross the, the lines yes. of the heart, can Yeah, it? exactly. Yeah. With this as a background then, so you became active in, in the United States, lobbying. Yes. On I the, started on already as, as a kid because I wrote my first letter to the editor when I was about 12 years old, I think, to the Cleveland Plain Dealer. I guess it was never published, but it was a pretty good letter. I, my mother saved everything I ever did. It was because uh, some person had made a disparaging comment in an article about the Hungarian freedom fighters. And you must understand, the Hungarian revolution for our family, this was a defining moment for us because so many people, like my parents, all hoped that this meant communism was going to be rolled back and it will all change and everybody will have their freedom back. And of course, it didn't go like that. And I learned from that that there are things worth dying for. And I went on then from there until I moved to the Washington, D.C. area, where from the suburbs it was very easy to get involved with uh, bigger politics uh, and uh, joined my first demonstration when Australia was about to uh, denounce the uh, non-recognition policy of the Baltic states to say that it's okay, the Soviets can have the Baltics. It's, this is a policy that the Americans very assiduously maintained for nearly half a century saying that the occupation of the Baltic states is illegal, and uh, this was our lifeline. And so we had the demonstration uh, by the Australian embassy. My son was in my backpack. He was not quite a year old. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we, uh, we got a lot of coverage in the media because who pickets the Australian embassy? Mm -hmm. Right. It, Our allies, yes. Yeah, it got attention. And then I started writing more and more letters, got some published in the Washington Post and other newspapers, and uh, I remember my first one that I was really proud of was uh, Wiped Off the Map, was the title of it. It was very short. This is my forte, writing short letters. They get in much more than big, ponderous letters. <laughs> and uh, the point was that uh, the maps in the Washington Post were publishing the Soviet Union as one big megalith and no border shown, where according to the non-recognition policy of the U.S. government, the Baltic state's border should be shown. And um, they published it, so that was good. We were speaking last evening with a couple of uh, members of the Estonian community here in the Chicago area, as you're speaking at uh, Wheaton College. Yes. And you had mentioned that uh, at one point, uh, the Washington Times had posted several letters to the editor in the uh, days when these were published in the uh, newspaper rather than posted online, and that several of them were all by yourself. Yes, five out of six were by me. It was on a Baltic topic, and at that point I had realized I wrote so frequently that I wouldn't get them all published. They had a limit, you know, you couldn't have a letter a day. And so I started using pen names, and it worked very well. Uh, but that day, I apparently was very inspired. And <laughs> <laughs>
You mentioned that uh, you even had uh, double entendres in the name itself. Yes, yes. Well, one of the names was Anna Pichta, which uh, Anna, of course, sounds like Anna. And Pichta sounds like a normal last name, but it in translation, it's kind of a slang thing that says, give them heck. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of Harry Truman, yeah. of course, Benjamin Franklin did similar things. He wrote yes. under pen names like Silence, sure. Do Good, and <laughs> things yes, of that sort. Yes. So you were continually writing and holding demonstrations. Lobby in Congress, meeting with people, and we also were able, the Baltic organizations of which I was in the leadership always, uh, to have meetings uh, with very high-level people, and we had a lot of friends in Congress. This was our strongest support. And it was bipartisan. Back in those days, it was wonderful. You know, found decent human beings who understood the issues and didn't matter if they were Democrats or independents or Republicans, they would be with us. There was only one senator that I was really disappointed in and was Senator Kennedy, who, whose staff said, oh no, we prefer to do quiet diplomacy. All I had done was asked him to sign a a message to a political prisoner who was celebrating, quote, his uh, 50th birthday in the gulag, and he refused to do that. It was a lot of hard work of walking the halls and talking to people and trying to convince them, and uh, there, were, there were moments where we were very disappointed in the administrations that came after Reagan, but uh, Ronald Reagan was, was fantastic, and he made, he made the difference with his commitment to freedom, his commitment to democracy, and, and to just being a decent human being. And his commitment was sometimes personal. He wrote to you personally, I understand. Yes, he did. I'm not sure that he actually sat down and wrote it. I don't know, but it was very exciting when it dropped into my mailbox. And uh, I had written him a letter thanking him. This was way back in 1983, because he had uh, proclaimed Baltic Freedom Day which was on the day of the mass deportations from the Baltic states. Then in response, it was not too long after that, he wrote to me, and I still get tears in my eyes when I read that letter. I almost teared up reading it myself. It's in your book. Yes. Would you mind reading that for our listeners? Oh, not at all, It's if I can get through it without sobbing. <laughs> but this was uh, September 6, 1983. Dear Mrs. Ricken, that was my name at the time, I was deeply touched by your letter. You exemplify one of the deepest reasons why America has succeeded as a nation. People came here from every land under the sun, and they discovered a country which enabled them to prosper, which inspired their loyalty, and yet never asked them to renounce their own sense of cultural identity and ethnicity. On the contrary, the fabric of American life is like a rich tapestry woven from many strands of different textures and colors, unified by a common respect for our free institutions based on the dignity of every person as a child of God. Too often, sadly, we Americans take our freedoms for granted like the air we breathe. We do not see the danger from predatory empires that fear freedom and hate God. You can perform a real service to our country by continuing to alert your fellow Americans about the dangers we face. We must remain strong and vigilant, but government can only do so much. I want to thank you for doing your part. Do not become discouraged 
Continue to pray for your ancestral homeland and for your adopted land. I join you in those prayers. God bless you. Sincerely, Ronald Reagan. Thank you so much. And to receive a letter like that from the White House, yes. how inspiring was that for you? It was very inspiring, and especially the part where he says that continue to do your part and do not become discouraged, because there were times where it was discouraging. Uh, people would stand up to little tin pot dictators but do nothing about the uh, monsters in, in Moscow. And uh, it was like they were using a rubber ruler to measure the human rights of how how some small country is behaving and then bending the ruler in a different way when it came to the crimes of the Soviet Union. But when Ronald Reagan tells me, do not be discouraged, how can I be discouraged? I have to go up. <laughs> and then the end of the Reagan administration and the early beginning of the Bush administration, finally those exciting days came uh, with the, the singing revolution. Yes. Millions of people joining yes. hands across three national borders. It was, what, August 23rd, 1989, I think. Yes, yes. Then something happened in the uh, Soviet Union, which was intended to make it more hardline, which was the coup in 1991 mm -hmm. against Mikhail Gorbachev. And yet it was exactly that that allowed Estonia to reassert its independence. It was something that we were prepared for, and you cannot uh, have an opportunity like that without having the preparation done. And here we had this important... Uh, uh, event that had taken place uh, at the end of uh, the 80s, very end of the 80s and the beginning of the 90s, which was the Congress of Estonia. And uh, this was based on citizenship of the Estonian Republic, which was under occupation. This was the point we had to keep making all the time, that we are not a Soviet state, we are not this and this and this, we are an independent state that has been occupied just for a long time. And um, so the Congress of Estonia was based on the idea of registering all of the citizens of Estonia who were holders of Estonian passports or citizenship during the Estonian Republic, which lasted from 1918 until they were taken over finally and forcefully in 1940. And amazingly, people went along with this idea that uh, the Congress of Estonia and the Citizens Committee was calling them to do. They registered in droves. There were volunteers, and this was all against the, the wishes of the local puppet government, um, which was, of course, beholden to Moscow. But they didn't uh, oppose it completely. They didn't dare anymore. We were so far into Perestroika and Glasnost that they were rather careful about what they were doing. So they registered almost 900,000 people. Out of a population of one and a half million. Yes, yes. Well, and a lot of those one and a half million were not Estonian citizens. So right. almost all that were citizens registered. And these people then were entitled to elect the Congress of Estonia, which represented all these fledging parties that had started by that time in Estonia. So we had a, a mini, mini constitutional convention kind of thing in Estonia. And at that time, all those years, uh, right there from 89 to 92, I kept thinking, I am reliving something like the American Revolution. And then the man who drafted our Constitution, his name was Yuri Adams. <laughs> so it was fantastic. And um, the personalities, I could find matches for many of them. And it was, uh, it was just an incredible thing to be able to live through, but it didn't just gradually 
or quickly come like this. You had to prepare the groundwork for a long time. And so this was thanks to the political prisoners, big inspiration for me, people my age who were willing to go to the gulag for asking for human rights, for drafting letters to the UN and uh, the amazing things they did. I, I had to do something to help. One last question. You always say that your intention in communicating is to tell people the truth, to touch their heart, and to give them something to do. Yes. What could our listeners do concretely in order to further our freedom and yours? I would say the first thing is to begin reading. Just pick up some good books and, and uh, educate yourself. I think this is more important than anything. We don't want Soviet thinking, Soviet mentality. We don't want this to infiltrate into our country and to become accepted. And so you first, you educate. You go to church, you pray. You learn what it is to be an American and how precious that is and how many people want to come here. Feel proud and, and love that flag. If you don't do it, who's going to? A searching question for each one of us to ponder. We'd like to thank the Sound Studio in Wheaton, Illinois, for the use of its facilities to record this interview, and to you for listening to it. As always, thank you for listening. To learn more about the Acton Institute and what we do, visit our website at acton.org. If you want to reach our podcast team here at Acton, email us at rfa at acton.org or leave us a message at 888-705-4180 to give us feedback and to let us know what you think of the show. Lastly, if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to swing over to iTunes and leave a review and rating. This episode is produced by me, Caroline Roberts, with audio mixing by Nathan Moore.